All right, if you would turn in your worship guide or your Bible to the passage for today. It starts in the Gospel of John, John's Gospel, chapter 3, verse 22. Let's stand and we'll read it together. After this, Jesus and his disciples went out into the Judean countryside where he spent some time with them and baptized. Now John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim because there was plenty of water and people were coming and being baptized. This was before John was put in prison. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. They came to John and said, to him, Rabbi, that man who is with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, look, he is baptizing and everyone is going to him. To this, John replied, a person can receive only what is given them from heaven. You yourselves can testify that I said I am not the Messiah, but I am sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine and is now complete. He must become greater. I must become less. The one who comes from above is above all. The one who is from the earth belongs to the earth and speaks as one from the earth. The one who comes from heaven is above all. He testifies to what he has seen and heard, but no one accepts his testimony. Whoever has accepted it has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God has sent speaks the words of God, but God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in his hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. <clears throat> Father in heaven, we pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock. Our Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys can be seated. Well, so far in our slow journey through John's Gospel, um, man, it's, it's been really good. It's just a little hype because there's a lot of stuff here. But so far, John the Baptist has been a major player. He's been a major a major character. And this makes sense historically. Um, John the Baptist was an international phenomenon. He really was the first celebrity preacher. He was huge in his time. We don't just read about him, by the way, in the New Testament. We read about him in Josephus. Uh, he was an international phenomenon. Um, he had a strong 
just to use language uh, that we use today. Uh, he had a strong brand. He was a memorable person. He was the Elijah-like desert prophet. He was wearing camel hair and eating weird stuff. He was a desert prophet-like character. And he had a lot of followers. A whole lot. He had an inner circle of disciples, just like rabbis do, just like Jesus did. But tons of people followed John. He really was a celebrity. His movement, his church, was huge. Jews came from all over uh, the diaspora, the known world where Jewish people lived, to hear his message. People traveled far and to undergo his baptism, to participate in the baptizing he was doing. His baptism was nothing uh, terribly new. It was a traditional Jewish ceremonial washing, which acted as a ritual or a symbol that symbolized repentance, very much like our baptism here. Uh, but it was also something more. It also symbolized renewal for the people of God. That's why John started his baptism at Bethany on the other side of the Jordan. Because that's where the people of Israel with Joshua first entered the land by crossing the Jordan River. So when the Jews went to go be baptized by John in the river there, it was the symbol of renewing their entry into the land, renewing the covenant. Some people even think that John stood in the middle of the river and the people came down on one side and then came out on the other side as if they were reenacting uh, that event there that we read about in uh, the last chapter of Deuteronomy and the first chapter of Joshua. This was huge. Um, but we also read in chapter 2 that John over and over again, uh, when he was questioned or approached or asked about who he was and what he was doing, he refused to lean into, to take um, ownership of that brand and exploit it. He was always deflecting. Um, he was a prophet. But he didn't identify as a prophet because he didn't want people to get the wrong idea. He didn't want people to think he was the Messiah. In fact, he said over and over again, I am not the Messiah. He didn't want people to think he was a great human being. We can read in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus himself said, no one has born of a woman is greater than John the Baptist. But John the Baptist was always deflecting he identified as a voice, as a forerunner, as a, a sign bearer for the true Messiah, the true prophet, the true great human being that would come. And when John the Baptist baptized Jesus, his relative, one who had been there in the crowd with him, as we saw in the text, uh, it's like regularly when he baptized Jesus, God gave John the Baptist the ability to see 
the Holy Spirit come down from heaven. We read in the other Gospels, the Spirit came in the form of a dove and rest on Jesus' head. And it was in that moment that he knew that this man Jesus, that he had presumably known maybe his whole life, that's the guy. He said, I didn't know him. But when I saw the Spirit come down and rest upon him, I knew that he was God's chosen one. And he began to tell everybody, look, that's the Lamb of God. That's the one I've been talking about. That's the one that takes away the sin of the world. That's him. This has been the story of John the Baptist that we've read so far. And in this story, the Gospel writer, John the Gospel writer, has been giving us a portrait of what it means to be a believer in Jesus. We've talked some based on the first part of John 3. We've talked about how uh, being a believer is different than being someone who believed one time, had a religious experience. Being a true believer, being a Christian in your inner life is something that God does in us. Well, in his portrait of John the Baptist, the Gospel writer is showing us, look, that's what a true believer looks like. That's what an inner life Christian looks like. It looks like him. John the Baptist, he got his identity from Jesus. He said, I'm a forerunner. I'm the guy that comes before him. And every Christian, we get our identity from Jesus. Uh, John saw himself as a witness to Jesus. And every Christian is a witness to Jesus. That's what it means to be a Christian, a Christ being. Just like in John's, we saw in the prologue, the Gospel of John introduces all of the themes that we'll find throughout the whole Gospel. Well, in the life of John the Baptist, the Gospel writer shows us all of the themes that identify Christian life. That's what this is. Now, why am I saying all this about John the Baptist? Well, the reason why is because this little story that we read here is the last time we see John the Baptist in this gospel. This is his, this is the gospel writers, uh, this is one commentator called this the valedictory story of John the Baptist. So you know how the person who gives the big speech at the farewell ceremony for the senior class of the high school or graduating class of university. The person's called the valedictorian. Well, the valedictory is the farewell story to somebody. And that's what this is. This is John, this is the last episode we see John in. This is his fade out. And just like in a good TV series, or just like in a good speech from a valedictorian, a good valedictorian, in the fade-out story, in the fade-out speech, we see uh, hammered in one last time. We get one last picture of the real deal of who somebody is, the actual substance. So that's what this is. So in this little story about John the Baptist, his ministry shrinking, we see the real guy. And what we see is authentic, consistent, real deal Christianity. We see a man whose inner life 
matches his outward practice of religion. So, do we want to be real deal, authentic, uh, you know, Christians? Do we want our inner life of real faith to match our outward religious practice, the thing that we come and do here every Sunday? Things that we proclaim with our mouths when we talk about our faith home and with our friends? Do we want that to live in our hearts? Do we want to be the same Christian on the inside and the outside? Do we want to be the real thing? Well, if we do, we want to be like John. So, what about this story? Well, I want to show you, I want to highlight uh, the sermon, so three things. I want to highlight three things that we see in this story that, we, that are true about what's going Three things we can see about John, about his inner life that are coming out. Three things that the Gospel writer is emphasizing about him. We can call this three characteristics of the inner life of a true, real deal believer. Three characteristics of authentic Christianity. So here's the first one. And if you're a note taker, number one. The inner life of a true believer is grateful. The inner life of a true believer is grateful. One mark of real deal, authentic, genuine Christian faith is gratefulness. Look at verse 25. An argument developed between some of John's disciples and a certain Jew over the matter of ceremonial washing. Okay, first, ceremonial washing, what's that? It's baptism. A, a certain Jew, who's that? We don't know. This is some dude who was there. So some dude who was there is arguing with John's disciples about baptism. Okay. That seems pretty normal. It seems like something that would happen in church. Somebody gets in an argument with the leaders of a church around something that's happening in church. Right? Okay. So that's going on. Verse 26. So they came to John. The disciples came to John. And they said, Rabbi, that man who was with you on the other side of the Jordan, the one you testified about, who were they talking about? Jesus. Remember? Jesus who was with them before, the one John was testifying. This is the one I'm testifying about. This is the one we So that man, Jesus, who was with you, look, he is baptizing. And everyone is going to him. The disciples come up and they say, John, Rabbi, Pastor John, um, the Jesus guy that was here before, that you were raving about, remember he left. Now everyone is leaving our little group, or our huge group, and going over to his group. What do we do? Uh, that seems pretty normal. I know a pastor, and I've definitely answered questions before that were something along the lines of, why is our church shrinking? That happened. And what does John say? He says, to this John replied, a person can only receive what is given to them from heaven. What a strange answer. And what a beautiful answer. A person can only receive what is given to them from heaven. In this story, John's super huge public celebrity ministry megachurch is shrinking. 
and his ministry is being eclipsed by the ministry of Jesus. Now, many people saw Jesus uh, at this time, and there's truth to this. I think there, well, let me say there, there may be truth to this. Many people saw Jesus as a former disciple of John. Right? Remember, Jesus is he's fully God, but he's also fully human. And the Gospel of Luke tells us that he grew in wisdom and stature and favor with God and man. So he wasn't born knowing everything. He learned. He studied. Many people believe he spent the part of his adulthood studying under John the Baptist. That makes sense because when we find Jesus for the first time in this gospel, what is he? Where is he? He's among John's followers. So, from one perspective, the master teacher here is being eclipsed by one of his former students. Now, the Apostle Paul one time said, "Administration: a student shall not become greater than his or her teacher." What Paul was doing was he was quoting a cultural idiom because in this cultural time, if you studied under someone, you were never supposed to surpass them in greatness. If you were going to do that, you needed to go somewhere else, like a non-compete thing. But here's Jesus just down the river, I guess. It's close enough where everybody's leaving and going to his camp, and John's disciples are like, Rabbi! What's going on here? Look, everybody's leaving. What does John say? He says, guys, all of this is a gift from God. That's gratefulness. I I know a pastor uh, or a pastor who was serving here in town, and he was leading a uh, as a prayer time, like a group prayer time. That I was a part of. And I remember sitting in the room, and he's about to leave the whole room in this uh, exercise of prayer. And he starts off the prayer exercise like this. He says, everybody, close their eyes and bow their heads. That's pretty normal. And then he says, okay, I want you to breathe in. Now breathe out. Now, I grew up in a choir kid. We did lots of group breathing exercises, which means I don't really like them. <laughs> I think they're kind of awkward. I'm not super into it. So I'm just like, oh man, are we, are we starting off prayer time with breathing? Okay. Okay, prayer time, whatever. Breathe in, breathe out. And then he does this. He goes, now everybody breathe in. And he goes, everything is given, nothing is earned. Breathe out. And he's like, oh, that's pretty good. <laughs> breathe in, everything is given, nothing is earned. Breathe out. And we did this three or four times. This is one of those things where if I read about it, I think it was pretty cheesy. And we probably won't do that here. Uh, but in that moment, he got me. Starting the prayer with remembering that everything that you have in life, you didn't earn any of it. All of it's a gift. That's what John is saying here. Folks, uh, we read our Bibles and we can read about how God created us in his image and he declared it good. We have inherent worth. But, just like our first parents, we have taken that goodness and we have thrown it away over and over and over and over and over again. We are sinners. Romans 3.23 says that the wages of sin is death. 
It means that every single one of us here should have a place on God's death row. Not because God is cruel, but because we choose it multiple times a day, multiple times an hour. Yet, look around. We're still breathing. That's incredible. Further, the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. God has given us his son, Jesus. God has given us the Holy Spirit to fill us. God has promised us life and salvation and eternity in his presence. Everything is a gift. I mean, so John here in these circumstances, John's losing his job here. He's losing his influence. The thing that he had been working for the whole time, his entire career as a prophet is coming true, and it means that he is getting pushed out. Did it have to happen that way? I don't know. But if I was John, I would think, dude, Jesus, look, if you're going on to start your ministry, take me with you. Make me your associate pastor. Make me your right-hand man. Don't leave us out here to let people fade away. What are you doing? You must become greater so I also can be greater. You don't see that in John. His disciples come and they said, John, church is fading. He said, God, it's all a gift anyway. That is fruit of the Holy Spirit's work in somebody's heart. That is perspective that only comes from God creating living waters of belief in you. So there's one mark, gratefulness. Here's another mark, which is related. The inner life of a believer is Jesus-oriented. Okay, I know that that sounds sort of obvious because we use the word Jesus and believer. You can think about it. The inner life of a believer is Jesus oriented. The whole life is oriented around Jesus. Look, look at verse 28. John explains this maybe better than I do. He says, You yourselves can testify I am not, that I said I'm not the Messiah. I'm sent ahead of him. The bride belongs to the bridegroom. The friend who attends the bridegroom waits and listens for him and is full of joy when he hears the bridegroom's voice. That joy is mine. And it's not complete. He must become greater. I must become less. When John says that he's a friend of the bridegroom, he is, um, it's being translated there as the great is of the word for groomsman or bridesmaid. Has anybody here served as a groomsman or bridesmaid at a wedding? Kids, Mia, you've been a bridesmaid before? No, you haven't? You imagine one time you did, though? Okay, that's enough. Has anyone here been married at a wedding before that had groomsmen and bridesmaids? Yeah. Everyone knows what a groomsman or bridesmaid is. Most of the friends. 
right. Um, do you know what the number one rule to being a good groomsman or a good bridesmaid is? There's a rule. It's universal. It's the number one rule. Any groomsman, any bridesmaid who wants to do a good job has to follow this rule. You know what it is? It's this. Um, the wedding is not about them. It's about the bride and groom. That's the rule. It's their wedding. Uh, it's their photo shoot. It's their party. It doesn't matter if the groomsman or the bridesmaid. If the bridesmaid doesn't like the color of the dress. Doesn't matter. Doesn't matter if the groomsman doesn't like the cut of the suit. Doesn't matter. Their job is to support the bride and groom, to enjoy the bride and groom, to make the bride and groom look good. That is why they are there. The bride and groom exist as the orientation, the point of reference for the groomsmen and bridesmen. Think about the way they line up on the stage. Who's in the middle? Bride and groom. And then off to the side, derivative oriented around groomsmen and bridesmaids. That's what John is saying here. He's showing us the inner life of a believer is Jesus-centric, Jesus-oriented. Just like a groomsman or a bridesmaid goes through the whole wedding preparation and wedding day, watching the, whether you're a bridesmaid or say you're a bridesmaid, watching the bride, helping the bride, does she need anything? Is she okay? Getting out of her way? Uh, you know, enjoying her. That's how believers go through life around Jesus. He is the point of orientation for the whole thing. Now, there's a thing that's going on. There's a thing that's easy to do. And it's, it's really popular right now, especially, I'm just going to say, our tradition, the tradition our church is in, which we can call, let's go broad to more narrow. So we can call it Western, American, um, mostly uh, ethnically and culturally white, evangelical, um, reformed Christianity. There's a thing that we do, uh, which that we should be wary of, and it's our tendency uh, to trade Jesus-centeredness, Jesus-orientedness, for church-orientedness, for Christianity-orientedness. You see what I'm saying? Imagine if you're a groomsman or a bridesmaid, and uh, you should... No, no, imagine this. Let's, put, let's do it this way. Imagine it's your wedding day. You're the groomsman and you're the bridesmaid, and you're you got your best friend. When I mean, you're the groom or the, or the bride, you're the people getting married, and your best friend is there to be your best man or your maid of honor. And you notice that the whole wedding they're not focused on you. They're focused on the events of the wedding, the circumstances of the wedding, what's going on in the wedding. So they're not helping. You, they're just making sure wedding stuff is okay. They're not paying attention to you. They're just paying attention to the events. They're not celebrating you. They're just kind of doing well. Now, that might not be noticeable to the people out there in the audience, the congregation. But it's noticeable to you. 
fact, maybe some of you have that groomsmen or bridesmaids or in-law at your wedding. But they weren't really focused on you. They were focused on the wedding happening in the way they wanted it to go. They were there to enjoy a nice day at a nice wedding. It could have been somebody else's. That's kind of like what we do culturally. We trade church experience, church identity, Christian religion for Jesus. And we center ourselves around these things. Um, think about it this way. We live in a time when many people, um, well, we live in a time when this tradition, but Western American, mostly culturally ethnically white, evangelicalism, it has fallen out largely, fallen out of favor in our culture. And many of our friends, many of our family members have left the faith. They, they don't want anything to do with, in fact, I listened, a friend of mine said the other night, we were talking about something that was happening in the world that was not good. And he goes, look, there it is again. White Christians, white Christians doing another bad thing. How many bad things in the world happen because of white Christians? And I thought, you know what? I don't like the way he's talking. What he's doing is true. So we live in a time when lots of people are deconstructing and leaving. And this environment is so easy for us to orient our minds, our thoughts, our prayers, our Bible study around Christianity instead of around Jesus. We can list off the top of our heads all the reasons why Christianity presents a reasonable worldview. We're ready to tell those reasons to our friends. We can list all the good things that Christians have done for the world. Christians have done this. Christians have done this. Christians have brought us education. Christians have brought us health care. Christians have brought us disaster relief. We can list all of the ways that Christian doctrine answers the world's questions. We are ready with our apologetics to defend the faith. Now, I'm not saying that those things are bad in and of themselves, but when that becomes our orientation, when our friends and our family members say, I've had enough of this, I'm out. And our first thought is, I knew that would happen. They stopped going to church a long time ago. When we stop church, we're going to leave the faith. Somebody just needs to sit around and tell this guy, yeah, that's another bad thing white Christians have done. Let me tell him all the good things white Christians have done and get his head right. We are obsessed with Christianity. And over here stands the bridegroom. Mm, hey guys, this is my wedding. Remember me. John shows us how, especially in circumstances when things seem to be waning and deconstructed, how to remain Jesus-oriented. People come and they ask John, his disciples come and ask John, why is our church getting smaller? And his John, wait, how does John answer? He talks about Jesus. 
Some random religious person comes up and starts an argument with John about baptism. How does John answer? He starts talking about John's disciples about baptism. How does John answer? He talks about Jesus. At every opportunity, Jesus is the answer to every question. I have a buddy who has a coffee mug that says, uh, I don't know what the question is, but the answer is Jesus. That's it. Folks, yes, Christianity is the religious system that, that, is, uh, that is points us where Jesus is, is, is the Lord and Savior. Yes, that's true. But Christianity is not Jesus. A biblical worldview can be, it's really good to get the way we view our world, have the Bible as a point of reference. But you know what? The Bible should not be our central point of reference. Jesus is our central point of reference. And yes, we learn about Jesus through the Bible. Yes, that makes the Bible a means to an end. He is the end. He is the point. He is the center. That's what believing faith is. That's what authentic faith is. It's about Him. And the last thing, inner life of a true, authentic, real deal believer is grateful, Jesus oriented. And the last thing is it's eternally minded. Um, let's start with uh, verse 31. The one who comes from above is above all. That's Jesus. The one who's from the earth belongs to the earth. Speaks as one from the earth. That's us. The one who comes from heaven is above all. That's Jesus. He testifies to what he has seen and heard. No one accepts his testimony, but whoever has accepted his testimony has certified that God is truthful. For the one whom God sent speaks the words of God, for God gives the Spirit without limit. The Father loves the Son and has placed everything in His hands. Whoever believes in the Son has eternal life. But whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on him, on them. Here we see Jesus is at the center of everything. But when we look at Jesus, we see eternity. He comes from heaven. He shows us God. The Father gives the Spirit without limit to the Son. And so when we go to the Son, we get the Spirit of God. And he ends with, everyone who believes in him has eternal life. John, his perspective is eternity. He's not limited to the here and the now. He's on a long timeline. I was listening to a sermon, or maybe it was a lecture, a teaching, on a, from a conference, uh, from Pastor H.B. Charles. By the way, if you're a sermon hobbyist listener, Pastor H.B. Charles. Awesome. I was listening to Pastor H.B. Charles give a sermon, and he told a story about a pastor that he knew who one day walked into church and there, and there was some kind of conspiracy going on in this church. The members had gotten together and there was, there was like a church meeting. And unbeknownst to him, on Sunday he walks in and there's an impromptu congregational meeting called and they voted and they fired him. 
his little nightmare. As for some reason, something he didn't do was horrible. And uh, Dr. Charles tells a story about how his pastor, he knew, um, he just lost his job. He gathered up all this stuff and he walked down. And as he was walking to his car, some young boys from the church came up and said, Pastor Charles, you don't look very bothered by all this. And he said, boys, I'm going to heaven. <laughs> and uh, they said, what? And he, and he said, I'm going to heaven. And he got in his car and drove away. And H.P. Charles tells this story. Uh, uh, the, the moral of the story is if your eyes are on your eternal destination, your immediate things that might just derail you, they shake you, but they don't derail you, right? There's your heavenly mind. This guy knew that no matter what happened to him in that horrible day, uh, his, the greatest thing couldn't be taken away from he belonged to God and his home was in heaven with Jesus. Now, it's reported that C.S. Lewis one time said that some Christians are so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. And what he's talking about is some Christians are like, hey man, all this is going to burn anyway. I'm just going to be taken out of here and I'm going to heaven, so forget all this stuff. And Lewis is right. You're no earthly good if your heavenly mindedness is like that. But I would, I would maybe counterbalance Lewis and say that um, some of us don't have enough heavenly mindedness to be earthly good. And what we see here in John's authentic, real deal of Christianity is that he is grounded and he is rooted in eternal things. His little Riverside church falling apart. Would you like to be that secure, that tough? To be that tough but retain your tenderness? I would. So we can sum all this up. Real deal faith, it's grateful, it's Jesus-centered, and it's eternally minded. So let me put these in questions. Do you want to have a fountain of gratefulness in you? Do you want that kind of joy, that kind of life? Do you long to be rooted in any kind of shifting circumstances or change? Do you want to know your purpose, where you belong, your orientation? And do you want to have eternal security of this? Well, if you are, then you're longing for true belief and true life. And you can't find those things anywhere except in Jesus. He baptizes with the Holy Spirit. He is the fountain of living water. We can't find it by clinging to church, by clinging to religion, philosophy, or worldview. We can only find it by clinging to Him. He's God's gift to the world. He's the solid foundation. He is eternal life. 